The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say it's really nice to be here and to see all of you, a few familiar faces, mostly unfamiliar faces. Um, I'm one of the primary teachers in, at Vipassana Santa Cruz. And um, I guess I take this opportunity, if you're ever in Santa Cruz, going to the beach or something, um, please uh, feel free to come by our center for some events. You can look at our website and see when we have sittings. Just a little bit about my background. I, I started practice in the mid-70s in, in the Zen tradition, as did Gil. And after I lived in the Cambridge Zen Center, I was in the Northeast in New England, and after a few years there, I um, actually Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts opened up. And I started, many of us actually, there was this exodus <laughs> from the Zen Center in, uh, to IMS, and we started practicing Vipassana. So I've been doing that since the late 70s, but I also, um, in the early 90s, uh, started practicing with a teacher doing wilderness retreats. And he had a background in Tibetan Buddhism as well as shamanism and Taoism. And that's actually going to be a little bit relevant to my talk um, today. And from that, I also started uh, doing more practice in Tibetan Buddhism, particularly Dzogchen. So all three of these traditions, the Zen and, and Vipassana, which I, as I like to say I've put most time on the cushion in Vipassana practice, and also that Tibetan Buddhism influences my teachings. Um, so my, my talk today is called The Nature of Practice and the Practice of Nature. Um, as a Dharma teacher, I'm committed to the path of awakening and to help in theory, hopefully help people on the path of awakening and the path of ending suffering and the path of finding out who and what we really are. And because of all of these, I feel it's very crucial as part of this practice to investigate our relationship to the natural world and the role of the natural world in our practice. This is something that's very dear to my heart and is always on my mind, even though I, I teach primarily in situations like this uh, rather than out in the wild, although I do that too. Um, but it, it, well, I'm, I'm leading some, some groups this summer and fall, but also because of the time of year, because people are going on vacations, because this is a good time to be outdoors. Of course, in this area, it's all year round can be a good time to be outdoors when I lived in New England, it was sometimes challenging in the wintertime, um, to encourage you to consider your time outdoors, um, whatever you do, as part of your practice. And I have a few things to say about that, how that might be, but also what um, being in the natural world has to offer us in deepening our practice and our awakening and understanding what might help lead to the end of suffering. Um, it's useful to remember that the Buddha didn't have meditation centers <laughs> that he taught at. Buddha didn't have any monasteries that he taught at. 
He spent the 40-some years of his teaching life basically teaching outdoors. He was uh, with his fellow arhats and monks, and they basically lived in traveling encampments in various parks and places around India. So he was an outdoor teacher. (laughs) It's sometimes forgotten. He also... um, Actually, is part of the Vinaya where um, rules about, he, he didn't use these, this term, but basically living lightly on the earth. And the Buddha was, was born and had a profound experience in childhood and was enlightened and died under a tree. So um, there's this great, the, the imagery of the tree is very important in Buddhism. And the, I sometimes think of him as the tree teacher. And he also taught under the, you'll see in many of the suttas about him teaching under the shade of a tree. In the Satipatthana Sutra, which is one of the foundational sutras, it's translated usually as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is a very influential sutra for the Vipassana practice in this tradition. And over and over again, the Buddha gives the instructions of go to the forest and sit at the root of a tree. Go to the forest and sit at the root of a tree. So I take those instructions very literally. (laughs) And once a few years ago, I was going to be leading a um, an outdoor nature retreat and I had a flyer for it. And I was um, I was seeing I was with Gil and I, I was, I asked Gil to look over the flyer. I was curious what he would, how he would respond. And I said, do you have any feedback for what I have in the flyer? And Gil said, well, I ha-, he read it and he said, I have, I have um, kind of an issue with one thing you said. And I'm there, uh-oh, you know. <laughs> um, and he said, what you, what you have written here is that meditating in nature can be a profound addition to our regular practice. And he said, actually, for the Buddha, practice in in nature was the regular practice. And um, I feel it's very important to remember that and include that in how we how we uh, live our life and and how we develop spiritually. There's also a line um, from one of the suttas from the Buddha that says, says, as long as there are practitioners who go to the forest to practice, the way of the awakened ones will never die. So again, I take this seriously. <laughs> um, you know, later after the Buddha's death, there was more organization and structure. Um, monasteries developed. There was actually some political conflicts between those who wanted more structure in the monastic, the, the, the more, the, you know, building compounds and so forth, and those who wanted to remain kind of wandering monks and live in the forest. So there's always been this dynamic, um, sometimes tension, or at least options in the practice. And, and this tradition is also has a great uh, strong ties to the Thai forest tradition. In the Thai forest tradition... And some of you may be familiar with Abigiri Monastery up near Mendocino. And uh, the Thai forest tradition, is surprisingly, is actually rather new. 
this, it was a resurgence of the um, sense of the importance of practicing against, again in the forest. And it really developed in the late 19th century. So um, there seems to be these ebbs and flows of this, of this aspect of the Buddhist practice. And certainly in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a long history of practicing in the mountains. Milarepa was a great yogi, spent years living in the cave in the mountains. There's many stories about many of those teachers. And Zen has also been long associated with nature, nature imagery, practice in nature. So what I'm going to propose uh, is that, that actually if we look at modern Western life, that um, we can see that uh, much of our suffering, much of our suffering on many levels, much of our dis-ease with ourselves and society and the world, you could see that you could propose that many of our unbalanced states and our physical and mental health problems, which are many, and of course they are our environmental situation, our global warming and the, the many, many, many environmental situations, are in a great part the result of or related to the degree of alienation and isolation and disconnection that we experience with, uh, with, with nature. So it's the, the alienation and isolation of the individual, of the human species that has developed in the modern world. Chalice Glendinning, who some of you may have be familiar with her, read some of her things. She actually has a book called My Name is Chalice and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization. <laughs> and she talks about um, the primal matrix, the matrix of, of life. It's basically the web of life that of which we are a part, of which we evolved, of which we are arising from and and going back into and as, as a living beings and how we've got disconnected from that. We're not literally disconnected. We can never can be disconnected. That's the point. But in how we think and how we understand things, how we behave, how we relate to the world and each other. And in Buddhism, there's the wonderful image of Indra's web, which is, is another as a Buddhist um, metaphor or image of the interconnectedness of life, of that everything is in this intimate web and every every they, they sort of have it as every um, point you might say in the web is a reflection of the whole it's a very uh, very much a hologram sort of image that has been around for a long time and there are some people as well I was a I'm a, a former um, former psychologist <laughs> If you ever become former, I don't know, but <laughs> I'm not practicing directly. Um, there's been a movement. There's what's called eco-psychology, and there's been a movement in eco-psychology to create a, uh, um, in the, di- the DSM, some of you may be familiar with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the big, thick, heavy book that um, categorizes mental disorders. Anyway, there's been a movement to try to get something called nature deficit disorder. (laughs) And and as far as I know, I don't know how much headway has been made, but um, I think it's such a widespread disorder that people don't recognize that it's a problem. Um, So so I think we need to acknowledge this and and, uh, as part of knowledge, this is going on knowledge, acknowledge this disconnection, this fundamental thing that's going on with us. And 
to realize our embeddedness, our unity. This is part of spiritual or mystical awakening in all traditions, to understand that we are made up of, literally, the earth and the sky and particles of stars. And as we, we um, are able to make more of this, reconnect ourselves to what is true, I find that it really restores and reveals for people their true nature. So in Buddhism you find a lot of terms like true nature or original nature, the nature of mind, things like that. And in sort of modern culture, we tend to sort of look to each other to figure out who we are. We tend to sort of spin out on our minds and we look to our ego structure and, and we look to sort of things and our, our human accomplishments to sort of determine who we are. But I suggest that by re-engaging very consciously and actively in the whole web of life and um, interacting, you might say, with the whole community of life is, is, again, where we will actually find our true nature and who we really are. You know, many of us, I imagine, many of us here enjoy this part of the world by going out in more into the, the, the natural world. Um, before I, I say that, I want to go back to, of course, who our true nature is here right now. We don't have, in, technically, we don't have to do anything differently or go in any particular place. It's revealed to us as um, truly here as anywhere else, in this room, in your home, in your car, wherever. But what I'm suggesting is is that um, we are sort of dulled down and we are kind of... Um, we kind of are missing who we really are, and that nature offers us a particularly powerful way of doing that. So m- most of us go into, into, in, into the natural world as kind of a pleasant backdrop to our human activity, um, to entertainment. We might go out there to be entertained in various ways, as backdrop, backdrop to social activity. Um, we are um, often... Uh, lost in our heads out there. We might go out there and just kind of be going over our our normal life rather than actually being engaged with uh, the world around us. So the uh, opportunity actually gives gives us a chance to have our sort of what I would say, the nature of reality revealed to us untainted by the confusion and the distraction and what I would call the narcissism of humankind. Um, from much of, much of what we create is actually sort of reflecting back to us our imbalance and our delusions. <laughs> um, so in a very fundamental way, nature reflects our true nature. And when we can go into nature in a sacred way through what's called um, sometimes opening the sacred view. Now, certainly we're opening the sacred view here in a place like this or anywhere. But if you what it means to open the sacred view is, is really your intention and then how you relate to what where you are and what you're doing. So if you go into nature with this intention of opening the sacred view of connecting to it in a sacred way, there will be many, many lessons there. 
And the principles of our, our meditation practice, practice, our Buddhist practice, our spiritual practice will be all revealed there in very powerful ways. So I'm going to say a few of those, what a few of those are. First of all, um, uh, nature invites us to slow down. Um, I would say we're, we're uh, suffering from a kind of condition of chronic agitation. Just driving here from Santa Cruz today, <laughs> I could sort of feel that on the highway. And there's this, um, I think all of us m- kind of have a sense of that chronic agitation or restlessness. And, and you may know that that is uh, agitation, restlessness is considered one of the five hindrances to meditation. So it's the, our body and mind need to slow down to the actual speed of life. Not the speed of electronics and mechanical objects like cars and airplanes, but actually to the organicness of what we are. There's a a Muslim expression that the soul travels at the speed of a camel. And I have a friend who just came back from Morocco and went on a camel trip. And apparently they're pretty relaxed. (laughs) And um, you could also say our heart... Our heart moves at the speed of nature. Of Our heart is nature. So our heart and our soul often in modern life gets neglected, gets trampled over. We don't have the space or the time or the ability to slow down to actually pay attention to what's in our heart, to pay attention to what we feel. To actually love and care for others takes slowing down. It takes paying attention. It takes knowing what you're feeling. It takes the ability to actually be there for others. And nature can invites us, as I said, or it can teach us this, because I live in the Redwoods. Redwoods are great teachers for this. (laughs) They've just been hanging around for hundreds of years. And uh, and it's kind of metaphoric, but it's actually quite literal. You can actually take on these teachings. So another, another principle is the principle of presence. Again, um, nature is not, is not doing anything else than being present. And it's really kind of a complex. I, I don't know about dolphins and whales and the other primates, but I suspect it seems to be the complication and the sophistication of the human mind, maybe uniquely, that allows us to create the delusion that we're not present. Um, because actually we are always present, but we, through being confused in our minds, we get distracted and we get disconnected and we get lost in mind creations as if they're real, as if the future is real, as if the past is real. And then we, we've, we aren't here. We aren't here fully. And nature re- relates to you only in the here and now. Only, it doesn't care about your past history. It doesn't care about what's on your resume. It doesn't care about how nice your clothes are. It doesn't care about your accomplishments or your failures. That's all past stuff. That's all ideas. It doesn't care about how much or little money you have in the bank. It's completely non-judging. Completely. As a therapist, I used to actually take... Because... Americans and, uh, are, are, seem to be really fettered with a lot of self-judgment and fear of judgment of others. I would take my clients sometimes out into nature. We just sit among trees 
and experience what it is to be with other beings that are completely non-judgmental and really don't care about all those things that we worry about. <laughs> and it could actually have a power of a powerful effect on people. Um, another thing, I, uh, this came to me uh, when I was on a long retreat once, that um, I don't know how many of you have been on retreat or if any of you have had the experience of coming to a retreat late. So maybe it's a 10-day retreat and you come in on the third or fourth day. If you, what happens is, is you find yourself, the energy is so palpable, so strong there of the concentration, the awareness, the presence, that you sink right into the retreat in a way. You, you are, if you're open, you, you almost come in at the same place other people who've been meditating for a few days are at. I actually was uh, teaching a retreat recently where someone came in late and we were talking about it afterwards. He said, I felt like I was cheating. <laughs> I didn't have to sit those first few days. I just came in. What, what occurred to me um, from that is that, um, that nature in the forest is uh, always on retreat and has been on retreat for millions of years. So you can actually go into nature in the forest in that way, and it will take you into very deep presence and deep wakefulness and deep stillness. I once wrote a, an article called May the Forest Be With You, and kind of talking about that kind of thing. So it also, being in nature, allows our senses to wake up. We've become really dull and kind of asleep and Partly that's kind of a lot of reasons, fatigue, overstimulation, kind of being assaulted, uh, assault of the senses in our life. And when you go into nature, there's, there's, if you go out there for more than a few days, you will wake up in a way, your senses will wake up, you'll be alive and present and mindful in a way that um, is, is quite extraordinary. And also as we go into nature, um, as we slow down, become more present, we will notice the great stillness and silence and spaciousness that is, is again, palpable there. It's here, too. Actually, it's in this room more than most places, but it's everywhere. Um, this, what I would call an underlying stillness and silence, which is the nature of reality in a certain way, or silence that goes beyond sound and silence, or stillness that goes beyond stillness and movement. There's a way in which accessing that, or beginning to let it seep into you, that kind of a kind of open spaciousness, that is, um, I find again more palpable, more available for me to recognize and access. I went on a, a couple. Two summers ago, I, I just camped out for two weeks alone on some friend's property in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I remember the first day going out there, sitting in my tent, and I was like, wow, the silence is so loud out here. <laughs> it was like, you know, vibrating silence. And um, it was quite wonderful. And this, if we sort of present with that and listen to that, we we sort of listen into a deeper our deeper nature, and this might not make any sense, and that's okay. Um, but we begin to be able to he- hear or listen to our our essential emptiness, which is or spaciousness, which is um, one of those terms you hear in Buddhism that's sometimes hard to 
fathom. And I also would say once you, you sort of hear or listen to that, you can also connect with the, the fullness or completeness or the wholeness of our nature as well. So as we again practice all this, we also, in nature, it's much easier to see, to I think, to directly, not just understand here, but to directly experience our interconnectedness and our our interdependence, which is our the fundamental principles of both Buddhism and ecology, interconnectedness and interdependence. And again, it's that idea we begin to really get this this flow, this web of life, this exchange of elements, of particles, of coming into being. And it's kind of like we're just, you really begin to feel and know that we're just sort of these uh, pieces of the earth, kind of watery earth, <laughs> that walks around. You know, we've come out of the earth. Sometimes we have this kind of sense of being, I don't know, dropped here on the planet, but we're, we're, we're sort of emanating out of the planet and we go back into the planet. And there's, it's very profound experience, and it, it creates this connection, this kind of love and this kind of joy with um, everything around you. This is uh, sort of the basic unitive experience, which is kind of foundational, sort of mystical experience. And I've done a couple month-long solos in the wilderness, and um, um, it was also wonderful to sort of uh, understand that there's this whole, we get so, humans get so caught up in our dramas and our stories and as if the human story is the only story on earth. But believe me, there's lots of other stories and dramas going on. And when you go out there, it's you can sort of connect into that and realize there's this whole, things are living and dying and things are being created and happening all outside of our dramas. And it's, it's quite extraordinary and wonderful and humbling. It can give you a little bit more lightness, even on our, you know, even on our road to perhaps destroying the planet. It can give you a little, a little more lightness <laughs> um, about the large, largeness of the universe. And um, another, another category, um, this is foundational to Buddhism, is really um, connecting, understanding, seeing, realizing impermanence. So as we um, again, impermanence is as true right in this moment as any other moment. But in nature, we get to sort of take, we get to see see it in action in a way that we kind of hide from, or just don't pay attention to the coming and going, the, the flow of life, one thing becoming another, things being born, living and dying. And this is how nature can actually be kind of frightening. Because sometimes I give this kind of talk and people will raise their hand and say, yeah, but what about, you know, all the frightening things in nature? And uh, that's an important part of the, the process because the frightening things in nature are, well, the ultimate frightening thing in nature is death. Nature is what gives us birth and nature is what gives us death because that's what we are. So it's this uh, being, the opportunity to see it, to confront our fears and to find what's really true. Um, I'm not that afraid when I go out in nature, but everyone goes out and has, if you do long periods and has something um, that you uh, need to confront. It might be fear of other humans in nature. It might be fear of bears. I remember putting someone out on a solo who was absolutely terrified with bears. (laughs) 
And um, mine is lightning. <laughs> I've been out in Colorado where there's, that's actually where I've done most of my work and uh, in, lived through <laughs> some fabulous and terrifying lightning storms and strikes. And uh, again, there's, there's a wonderful depth that comes from that. And perhaps the, the last category, which is sort of a summation of all of these, um, that's very important to me, and I think it's very important in our practice, although it's not always talked about directly, is, is, is connecting with um, the fundamental mystery and magic of life. Again, I sort of said this earlier, but I find that people, there's often this kind of heaviness or dullness or some spark has gone out for people, that there's this um, life has become tedious and rote and boring and uninteresting, perhaps feeling safe, um, even though safety is always an illusion. Sometimes our the, the uh, devil's bargain is to feeling of safety, we lose our aliveness. And um, I, but I think it's a lot that our lifestyle and, and the attitude of, of modern life has lost that connection with the vast mystery and, and real magic of life. And my experience in going out into nature is that you find mystery and magic that will surprise you. Just, um, just things, nature gives you incredible gifts. Uh, um, you see things, you'll have contact with animals, you'll see things that have incredible beauty and, and, and things you can't understand, and also things that go beyond our conventional understanding, modern, western, you know, scientific, rational view of reality. Um, I, uh, it's one reason I think things like Harry Potter are so popular is because it's reminding us of um, the magical side of life. I'm not suggesting what you'll experience looks like Hogwarts or, <laughs> or that realm or anything, but uh, and children, of course, many of you may remember. I remember for myself of this sense of the magic and mystery of life being very strong as, as a child in, in nature, and then I sort of felt it gradually decline as I became an adult adult. <laughs> so it's been a life of reconnecting with, with that. And um, it's sort of like, where do you want to be? I don't know how many of you are. I'm not a big Harry Potter. I, know, I haven't read all the books and stuff, but I know the basic, seen all the movies. <laughs> I um, know the basic gist. I don't know how many of you are, but it's sort of the question, do you want to be a muggle or do you want to be one of the, the uh, wizards? <laughs> And I ran into a friend a little while ago who's done a lot of, I've done wilderness work with in, in Colorado, has done a lot of wilderness work, and he's actually lives near here, and he's, uh, he was a um, tenured professor at Stanford and, and internationally known in his field. Works, I think still works actually at a think tank. And, but he's sort of, he, he left his position, and um, and is sort of not doing the mainstream thing so much anymore. And I ran into him and he said, oh, it's, it's nice to see you. He says, you know, it's hard living with the muggles all the time. <laughs> so um, I invite that, I suggest that you can 
connect with some kind of uh, something more fundamental and alive and awake and interesting. There's a line from uh, the great forest, Thai forest master Ajahn Chah, which is, um, is a longer quote, but your mind will become still like a clear forest pool and you will see strange and wonderful things. And that's both metaphoric in terms of our internal experience, but in my experience is it's quite true externally. And um, I've had some great experiences. Um, I have some good stories with that. Seeing wonderful things when you become still and quiet and nature will respond to you. Nature will, um, animals will relax around you. Animals will actually approach you. Um, and you sometimes, as I said, connect into mysterious, mysterious events. So, um, you know, we are, we are nature. That's the whole point. There's nothing outside of nature, actually. That's sort of the, the end point. So that means everything we create is actually part of nature. Our buildings, our cars, our computers, our bombs. Um, the problem is that what we are creating, I think, has come from a, you could call it a sickness of the mind, you know, in Buddhism, it's called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And we're being caught by the sickness of the mind and having an un- unbalanced mind. And we're creating things that are, are actually harming ourselves and others, the whole planet. And I do believe this is something we can stop for ourselves and stop for others. I sometimes think, well, look, if, if humankind survives and becomes balanced again, I think we'll look back at this era as the era that, that we poisoned our minds and our body and the planet. And we're poisoning ourselves in so many ways and everything else. But this is an opportunity to turn ourselves around spiritually, to wake up spiritually. It's an opportunity to turn things around in terms of what's happening on the planet. And I, I feel this is, as a species, what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we need to be learning. Um, Bob Thurman, the, he's a, you may know him, a Buddhist teacher. Um, he calls meditation evolutionary sport. <laughs> and this is, this is part of our evolution and our possibility, both on a personal level and as a species. Um, so I'm going to actually end there, and we'll have a couple minutes for any questions or thoughts or sharing. But let's just sit Sit um, silently for a few moments. Hey, um, so we have a few minutes. If, if there's anything you would like to share around this or any questions you have or thoughts or observations or feedback or. Did this make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Thank you. Uh, I, I want to remember right now um, many friends and others, um, especially in Big Sur, who uh, are suffering as the as the uh, ground cleans itself. And uh, may all fragile beings find refuge. Can you talk about a couple of trips that you're going to be giving? A couple of wilderness trips, did you mention? Yeah. Um, I'm actually doing one next Sunday for a week in the Sierras, but that one's already full. Um, I'm going to be offering a week long, another, well, it's actually nine days, August 16th to 24th in the High Sierras. And I'll be teaching this with a friend, Susie Harrington, who is a Vipassana teacher and wilderness guide from Utah. We're going to be leaving from the Edison Lake area, which is east of Fresno, and hiking in eight miles to, um, we're not sure exactly where, but up there in the John Muir wilderness. And um, it's not a backpacking trip. We're actually going to have mules bringing in our gear. So as long as you can, you feel you can hike in about eight miles, something like that, then we'll be gathering together for, um, for about six days and having a retreat there. And it'll be a combination of, um, we'll be doing sitting and walking as a group together, but there'll also be time for individual practice and probably a two-night solo, if you optional solo. And um, the, the teachings will be Vipassana teachings, but modified, you might say, to the environment and modified to to allow nature to um, teach you to the fullest um, in the way some of the ways I've, I've described here. So um, we'll be doing also Qigong and some some other things. So um, there are some flyers on the table for that. And so and then in, in uh, October, I'll actually be going to Utah and be uh, teaching with Susie, one there in Moab. And that one you won't be hiking in, but we're going to a camp in the Red Rock area, which is quite beautiful, which is yurts and um, yurts and teepees, and doing a similar thing there. So that's what's coming up. Yes. Do you have any? Is it on? Do you have any suggestions for bringing children with you into the wilderness, especially like six-year-old twins? Yeah. Um, gosh, I, I, I totally, totally <laughs> encourage you to do whatever you can with kids in, in, in nature because that's what will make the difference for the future. And I, I read... Um, there's a couple wonderful books about that. Um, Last Child in the Wild, I think it's called. And, um, oh, there's another one which isn't coming to mind. Um, you know, whatever, whatever you can do just out of nature. I find that if you get them early, um, children will nat- naturally just want to... Um, play out there, but you have to get them early. And if they're at an age where they're kind of like nature is boring, uh, then, you know, whatever activities and explorations and um, 
you know, I'm being very general, but it's it's really, you know, anything. I sort of feel like I'm in the last generation or people my age, which is in my 50s, of when I was a kid, we were let loose to run in packs and basically went into the woods. And now kids can't aren't allowed to do that very much. And what we're, we're, we're sort of, um, this is of great concern to me, we're you know, um, bringing up uh, generations of children without even less and less connection to who they are and to the natural world and less caring. So um, if I, if I um, wanted to work with children, I tend to want to work with adults. If I wanted to work with children, I think that's really where it's at, is working with children around this uh, We have another minute, maybe. So how do you define mind, soul, and spirit? Mind, soul, soul and, and spirit. And spirit. How do you distinguish them? Why, why do you want to know? <laughs> I was confused. <laughs> you're confused. <laughs> okay. It's not surprising you're confused, because those are words that are used in many different ways by many people, and the same person like me might use the same words differently. I'm not sure I can give you um, a really good definition off the top of my head. Um, Again, it would depend on how I'm using it. It would depend on how people are using it. Just mind. There's mind with a capital M and mind with a small m. The small m is our normal cognition, our normal understanding, our normal conceptualizations. And the mind with a big M is the, is the, um, the more ultimate consciousness or awareness, what we might call awareness here, primordial awareness, basic awareness. Um, spirit, you know, I would I think of spirit as kind of the um, energy behind life, and I think of this is just me, and I think of soul as the um, kind of the the richness of our story, the richness of our history, the richness of our. Um, maybe collective unconscious as a, as a species. It's uh, it's the uh, it includes. Well, that's about all I can I could say for that. So we do need to stop. So um, I, I appreciate. I will be here for a few minutes. I guess you're having your brunch thing. I'll be here for a few minutes if you want to ask me any other questions and. Um, Again, I, I thank you all for inviting me, and uh, I hope this was useful to you and inspiring to you in some way. I encourage you to, to really um, consciously go out into nature and let it teach you. And um, I'll just end with a little dedication for us today. So, in order to dedicate this time together, let's uh, gather up, imagine us gathering up all the positive energies, all the benefits, all the merit, all the great results 
of our practice together, all the efforts of our spiritual work. And we sort of gather it all up in a great mass of some kind, and we offer it, we give it away, we donate it, we, we, through our generosity and the goodness of our heart, we send it out to all beings everywhere so that all beings find their true nature, so that all beings awaken fully, so that all beings become free. Thank you. Have a lovely day in life.